I want to get into my word and I'm going to keep it short this morning and, and to the point. I think a lot of what I wanted to share has already been said. But before I do that, I want to welcome our guests. If our host Lisa and Byron can get up. If you're a visitor with us or a guest with us for the first time this morning, uh, we want to welcome you. Would you just put up your hand? Just first time guest. This chair is for you guys. Now, just, just keep it up for a short while until they give you a welcome card, and we would love to speak to you. We've got something to give you after the service through the back doors on the left. There's a little table, and we'd love to connect with you there. This morning, we are going to continue with our 10 series, and it's our second last week. Now, for those of you who's counted, you might say, whoa, stop here. There's three more left. I'm actually combining Commandment 8 and Commandment 10 in the message this morning. Because we've said from the start that speaking about the Ten Commandments is not reiterating the law of God. It's addressing our hearts. Because if we get our hearts right before God, the natural expression of our lives will be that we will follow His law. So what I'm doing this morning is to put the Commandment 8 and Commandment 10 together. And then next week, Pete will wrap it up with Commandment 9 for us in this series. Who's enjoyed this series? Who's really enjoyed this? Now, see, that's amazing. Who ever thought that you could enjoy a series on the Ten Commandments? I mean, we grew up having to recite it, having to remember it, and maybe there was no fun in this, but it's amazing when we apply ourselves to the life that God gives us through His commandments, how exciting it becomes. So as a start of this morning, I often used to watch Oprah, I'm confessing. With my wife. I'm just saying that ad-lib to the, the next part. Um, thank goodness that's not happening anymore because uh, she's off the TV. But my personal, my personal fun part in Oprah was always when she hands out stuff. Yeah, you see, all the, the heads are like, is she going to give away cars today? Is it going to be computers? Is it going to be that holiday that everyone is dreaming about? And Oprah was really the queen of gain. She was like, come to me and I'll give you amazing things. That's kind of, if you come to an Oprah show, you're, you're going to get something, right? Even if it's not an actual physical thing, you're going to get inspired and you're going to get encouraged. But my favorite moment was when she said, look under your chairs because you are all winners. And this morning there's two winners in this space. So two people have something under their chairs. There's a big Every Nation sticker and the two people who find it can come forward and each get a slab of chocolates to get them through my sermon this morning. So then why don't you go around and see if there's a stick. You might have to turn the chair around. You might have to look at the chair next to you if it's empty. Maybe it's next to you. If you've got a sticker, come forward. There's one sticker. Fantastic. Now, there's a sticker in this vicinity there. There's a sticker in this vicinity there, behind, just there. I'm looking at you, I'm pointing at you. Make sure you lift the chairs, you turn it around. Have we got a second winner yet? Someone sold a sticker. I'm not going to go get the sticker now because I, I can do without the slab of chocolate. Have we got a sticker there? Let's give him a hand. There we go. <laughs> I 
I'll, I'll walk your, your gift to you this morning so that, so that you don't have to walk. Let's give this gentleman a hand for his chocolate. And there's one for you. Emma's a missionary, so she's blessed with that chocolate this morning. But it's interesting how the Oprah environment and lifestyle really just is it's just a show of how our humankind is. We would do anything to gain something. It's interesting what people would actually apply themselves for in order to get stuff. I, I read some interesting things this week, some stupid things. There was, there was a company in New York called Rapid Realty New York City who offered their employees 15% pay increases to have their logo tattooed on their arms. So 40 of the employees signed up and they went to get this ugly green logo on their arms for the security of 15, only 15% pay increase on their payroll. And then I, I read this one, that, which blew me away. In April, in April 2011, Wang Shankun's mother discovered that her 17-year-old son sold his kidney on the black market to buy an iPad and an iPhone with the money. So somehow, it's in our human nature to want to get. We want more, we want better, we want to upgrade, we want this, we want that, the bigger home, the next thing. And I asked myself the question this week, and a question to you this morning, what is great gain? And that's the title of the sermon this morning, what is great gain? And we're going to find out in the Word of God this morning what it is to gain. And that it's totally opposite as is the kingdom principles that Jesus teaches us. It's completely opposite to the principles of this world. So the world thinks gain is when Oprah says everyone is getting a car. And when you're getting a chocolate under your chair, that you have won and you have profited and you have reached gain. But the Bible teaches something totally different. Our two Commandments this morning is, commandment number eight, you shall not steal out of Exodus 20 verse 14. And um, we're going to spend some time ministering to all the thieves after this service. The band has prepared Jailhouse Rock for us as a song of ministry. But somehow we feel that, ah, I'm not sure if this applies to me. I think I'm pretty okay with this one. I would be the last guy to walk around and just nab someone's phone or try and steal his car or break into his house. But again, we fall in the trap, and the enemy is very good at making us fall in the trap to think that stealing only applies to material things. And yes, some of us probably might have been guilty in moments in our life where we took something which is not rightfully ours. Because that's what stealing is. It's when you say, I'm going to take this chair and make it mine, but it is not rightfully yours. The Bible says in Psalm 24 verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and those who dwell therein. In other words, everything on earth belongs to God. He owns it. So stealing is an act against God. Because you're saying, God, I will just apply the arrogance of my heart and take something that doesn't belong to me. I said this already, but taking something which is not rightfully yours is not limited to material things. Here are some examples. Changing details on the items of an invoice to put a little extra in your pocket. Stealing from your work time when you call in a sickie to spend a day on the beach. Not paying an employee what is rightfully theirs. The four-letter word we all treat as a swear word, but as a test every time to see if we will worship God in all areas of our lives. Anyone want to take a guess? 
SARS. Or letting that item slip, which didn't get rung up at the till, and you know it didn't get rung up, and you just, <laughs> thanks, pay, and go. It was interesting how the, the enemy tried to trick me up this week. I bought flowers for Helena, and I bought two bunches. <laughs> I was practicing what I was preaching last week about marriage. And I bought two bunches, but the lady only rung up the one bunch. And I stood there, and she gave me the total. I'm like, because when I do shopping, I do the math in my head. Anyone else like that? I want to make sure I stay within budget. So do them. And I'm like, ah, this is much cheaper than I anticipated. And I realized that she hasn't rung up the other bunch. And for a moment, for a slight moment, I had the temptation to just not say a word. And then as I was about to say, you know what? She said, oh, I missed the other bunch. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but it's interesting how quickly it happens. So we might think we're above this one. We don't steal. But there's these other small little foxes and things we can do or cook up and, and activate that actually is stealing and taking something which is not rightfully yours. The second commandment that I'm talking about this morning is you shall not covet. And I thought about this. Stealing probably happens most times when we're coveting because you want something that is not yours. You desire it so much that some people will just take it. But covetousness is where there's a deep desire for something that you should not have a desire for and that you would actually put it into action. And this verse goes further than just saying you shall not covet. It actually says you shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We spoke about this last week. Or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. There's another version for the word donkey that I didn't use. It was actually in the Bible. And I thought I'm not going to say it in there because I don't want to say I'm coveting anyone's donkey. Or anything <laughs> that is your neighbor's. And I want to highlight that scripture there, anything. So anything that does not belong to you, you should not be coveting. And this goes beyond material things again. It goes beyond to the point where we are coveting other people's success. In church, we are coveting people's gifts. We are coveting the ministries that people have given some people and leaders. It's like, just it should be me up there. It should be I. It should be... My gifting. And coveting becomes a, an idolatrous thing. And it says in the New Testament that coveting is idolatry. Because you are saying, God, you know what? You didn't give to me what I am worth and what I deserve. And I desire greater and further things. So this morning, talking about stealing and coveting, I want to talk about contentment. The way we fight covetousness is with contentment. The anecdote for covetousness and the anecdote for taking something which doesn't belong to you is coming to a place where you are content. An airline, airline pilot was flying over Tennessee mountains and pointed out a lake to his co-pilot. And he said, see that little lake? He said, when I was a kid, I used to sit in a rowboat boat down there fishing. And every time a plane would fly overhead, I'd look up and I'd wish I was flying. Now I look down and I wish I was in a rowboat fishing. Isn't that how we are? If we can just get that amazing holiday and then we're on the holiday and I just want to be back home. Or if I can just get this car and now I've got this car. You know what? The previous one was much better. That's just the way of the human nature. So we ought to get to a place where we are content. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
this is going to be our key verse for this morning. And we're going to look at five verses out of 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. And here's the key for my message. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Say great gain. If you want to have great gain in your life, and that word great in the original context says massive gain, exuberant gain, you need to get to a place where you are worshipful towards God and content with what He has given you. It goes on by saying, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Nothing, nothing, nothing you've worked your life for, you've built up for, will go with you out of this world ever one day, except for the souls and the people that you are taking along. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's a strong encouragement to us. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I love how the Aramaic Bible in plain English says this. It says, For our profit is great which is the worship of God while having the necessities, for we have enough. And this morning I want to show you, looking at three examples, that we actually do have enough. That if we can get that what God has given us through the cross and through making us and creating us and through the story of our life which He is writing and through wanting us to flourish, all these messages that we've heard and what Kate prayed that we would be satisfied If we can get that, we would never be in a place where we would have to fight against commandment 8 of stealing and commandment 10 of having to covet. I'm going to look at the words of three men in the Bible that spoke about this in their writings. The first is the words of Agur. To all the golfers, that's not Agur on the ground. The guy was called Agur. Sorry, that's a golfing joke. I don't golf, but I've seen Agur before. But he wrote that God is his provider. And we read about this in Proverbs 30. He says this. Just jump there. Two things I ask of you. Just two things, Lord. Not a hundred, just two. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a powerful prayer to pray. God, just give me enough. Because I believe you're my provider. I believe that in you I will have all things. I believe your word that says that the lions might go hungry, but the sons and daughters of God will not lack anything. And he understood this and it gave him the boldness to say, God, nothing else matters apart from living a life truthfully ahead of you. And that you only give me sufficient and enough to walk up a, a righteous life with you going forward. I love the writings of A.W. Tozer, if you haven't noticed before. And in his little book, The Pursuit of God, the second chapter is called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The world doesn't say that. The world says the blessedness of possessing anything you want. And I want to read the prayer that, we, that he prayed at the end of this chapter which aligns to the prayer of Agur. It reads like this, Father, 
I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please, please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then you shall make the place of your feet glorious. Then my heart shall be a place for you, and I will have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it. And there shall be no night in there. I pray this in Jesus' name. And to live according to what is needful doesn't mean to settle for less, but for God's best. It's actually beneficial to you to get to a place where you're like, God, I just want to live according to what, I, what you need to give me, what I need to get through this life. I don't want to have any other treasures in my heart that fights for space with you. I just want to live according to your purposes. I'm always inspired by the men of faith who say that they've closed their budgets, that they know that they only need X amount to make it through the month, and God supplies that amount. And then when God supplies over and above, they just give it away. They're just like, I've got what I need. I've, I've reached my needful. I've reached my necessities. Anything more than that, I will give away. So we counter covetousness with being content with what God has bestowed upon us. The second one is the words of Asaph. And he said, God is my portion. Not only does he provide everything I need, he actually is everything I need. He is my portion. He is what I need in my life. He wrote the Psalm, Psalm 73, which we have often used and quoted. And you probably have heard some parts of the Psalm. But he starts out with a deep disillusionment towards God. He starts out by saying, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. And then he speaks about how the evil and the wicked prosper. And he's challenging God. And he's saying, God, why do the people out there in the world have all these things? Why? Why do you allow that? And then he resulted in saying that I'm going to find my answer in the shelter of God. He's, he wrote this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of the Lord. It was such a bother to him in his heart that people out there gained all these things, yet he sometimes felt he didn't have it. He said, God, I'm going to lay down this battle in my mind and I'm going to go to your house and spend time with you and hear what you have to say. And then it turns out that this is what he resulted in after spending time with God. Psalm 73, you hold my right hand, you guide me with counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. To him, God was more than just a provider. To him, God was everything he needed. And he took a step up from Agur's prayer and saying, but you know what, God, if I just come to you and I quiet my soul like we did this morning, I just realize you are my portion. You are what I need. You are everything I need. And in you is all the riches in Christ Jesus available to me to operate from. When we hold a greater desire for the things of the spiritual estate, we won't fall for the bait of the temporal estate. 
And that's what Asaph is teaching us. Regard in your heart a greater desire for those things of God and making Him your portion than the things that the world has to offer. And then my last encouragement is the words of Paul. And he speaks about God being our position. Not only is God my provider and my portion, He is where I am positioned. Paul had the revelation that God provided everything he needed and that God is his portion. But Paul kept speaking about his position, which is in Christ. So there's an even greater level of contentment that we can reach, understanding that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's what the Bible teaches. We are new in Christ Jesus, a new creation. Our position has changed the moment we made Christ Jesus Lord of our lives. And therefore, Paul could have written the next words in Philippians 4. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to be to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret that Paul lived his life in was understanding his position. And if we go to God and we say, God, thanks for being my provider, but Lord, there's more. God, I want you to make, I want you to be my portion. I want you to be the reason I get up, the reason I go to work, the reason I work, the one that I worship through my work, the one that I worship through my spending, the one that I worship through the things that I desire here on earth, which sometimes are godly desires. But Lord, even more than that, I want to be still and steady in position in you, knowing that I am unmovable because I am in Christ Jesus. The security of being in Him offset the need for things. If we can get to a place where we are secure in our position in Christ Jesus, this hard matter of idolatry and covetousness and wanting and desiring and fighting and whatever it is that we all battle through, because this is a real battle for all of us, will be offset because we're saying, God, you are sufficient and you are enough and in you is everything I need. And it ends this morning in a confession that we can all make. I am content. My position is secure. My portion is sure. And his provision endures. That's what God is saying to us this morning out of these three examples. That we can be content because of these three things. When we understand this, the need to take what is not rightfully ours or to desire the things which doesn't belong to us, it becomes strangely dim in the light of the glory and grace that we have in Christ Jesus. So let us make that our prayer, getting to a place of being content and fighting covetousness with contentment. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us this morning in so many ways, Father. That you have really dealt with our hearts and still are dealing with our hearts and saying, are your hearts for me? Are your hearts resting in me? Is it in a position of security without strife in me, in Christ Jesus? Lord, and it's my prayer this morning that we will get to that place of being positioned in you. Where all the riches of Christ dwells available to each one of us. Lord, I pray that we will be a people that make you our portion. That having you and living for you and according to your will will be enough for us, Father, and will suffice. Lord, thank you that you're our provider. 
Thank you, Lord, that even in times when we do silly things and don't steward our resources well, you still provide and you still come through. Lord, and I pray for everyone in this room, in whichever area they are at, that these three things will come a rea- become a reality in their lives and that they too can say, like Paul, I am content in the lack and in the abundance because of God and the secret, knowing that you give us strength for every moment of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you strengthened us this morning. Continue to do so throughout this week. And we pray that in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.